I've made a shocking discovery. I need you to get me in touch with NASA immediately. Well, NASA and I aren't really on speaking terms these days. Oh, that'll change. When you tell them that the moon is out of orbit. When a conspiracy theorist tells you that the moon is actually an alien megastructure that's falling out of orbit, how seriously should you take him? If you're a character in a movie called Moonfall, you should take him very seriously. But if you're living in the real world, don't panic. Moonfall is not exactly a science documentary. That being said, there's still a smattering of science behind the fiction, and one of the science consultants for the movie, Mika McKinnon, had a lot of fun working geophysical concepts like the Roach Limit and Tidal Bores into a movie directed by Roland Emmerich, the master of sci-fi disaster. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, your host for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and Mika McKinnon, a Canadian geophysicist and disaster researcher, as we discuss the amped-up science of Moonfall. If you're the kind of film fan who insists on scientific rigor in a sci-fi movie, Moonfall is not for you. It's the latest flick from filmmaker Roland Emmerich, who's famous for movies such as Independence Day, 2012, and The Day After Tomorrow. Like those previous movies, Moonfall takes a subject of scientific speculation that's ripped from the headlines and turns it into a big-screen spectacle, with big-name actors including Halle Berry, Donald Sutherland, Patrick Wilson from The Conjuring Movies, and John Bradley from Game of Thrones. It took a whole team of science consultants, including Mika McKinnon, to add a dash of plausibility to a movie that features swarming nanobots, an alien megastructure, and the resurrection of NASA's space shuttle Endeavour. McKinnon is no stranger to the movie business. She's been a science advisor for productions including Star Trek Discovery, Stargate Atlantis, and Stargate Universe. Meanwhile, in her day job, she conducts research into the geophysics of landslides on Earth and other celestial bodies. When we chatted in a Zoom call, McKinnon talked about the balance between Hollywood fiction and real-world science. In a Twitter posting, she says that Moonfall is a ridiculously exuberant disaster movie, and so I started out asking her what it was like to be in on the ridiculous exuberance. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. So there's actually a whole team of science consultants. If you look in the credits, there's everyone from an astronaut to a doctor in there. Um, and it was just so much fun to be able to just amp things up. I'm a disaster specialist. I'm a geophysicist and disaster researcher. And so this idea of being able to take this ridiculous scenario of the moon crashing into the earth and go, okay, and then what? And then what? And just keep piling on the disasters and amping them up is just, it's like having the cotton candy job. When I'm doing disaster work in real life, it's often really grim and depressing. I'm dealing with people after they've lost everything, or I'm trying to convince them that something terrible is going to happen. So to be able to do it in a fictional setting is definitely way more fun. And if you have a team of science consultants, you can always blame somebody else if you get too much heat for one of the things that happens in the movie. Oh, well, I mean, like, I, I have no problems with that because a movie is supposed to be 
fun. And science is allowed to be fun. You don't need to nitpick it at or like rip it all apart. The science is there to add some plausibility. It's there to add some details. It's there to inspire the writers to come up with new and more ludicrous things to add on. The real world is depressing and grim enough. We've all been locked down in pandemic forever. We've got climate change going on. I'm in the Pacific Northwest where it feels like it should be an apocalyptic movie between like (laughs) the floods and the fires and the heat dome that killed millions of fish. And like, it's been rough to be able to escape for a little while into somewhere where the disasters are way worse than mine and has a happy ending is really lovely. It's just lovely. Did those real world disasters figure into the things that you contributed to the movie? So we did use real world models for some parts of it, but there's a lot of things in science that we, um, we come up with models and ideas and simulations, and then we try and use them to predict future events, which in, in the earth's case is we expect the moon to slowly keep creeping farther and farther and farther away. But There's no reason you couldn't change your input numbers and just push it the other direction and find out what happens. How close can the moon get before you hit the Roche limit and it gets ripped into pieces? What happens when you have the, like, we've looked at the tidal impact of the moon on earthquakes for decades in geophysics. We've just been like, oh, can we finally predict earthquake timing? No, no, we cannot. But can we finally predict it if we look at the tidal patterns? Like, is there more frequent earthquakes during particular times of the tides? No, no, there is not. But we've done the models enough that now we know why not and go, oh, so how much closer would the new moon need to be? in order for it to impact your earthquakes. How much closer would the moon need to be for the tides to be much, much different than they were? It's more than hand-waving. There really is some oh, yeah. thought that was put into this. That's that's You Absolutely. always wonder about that, whether the science consultant is there just to say, oh, sure, go ahead, uh, make it blow up real good. <laughs> uh, the way I see it is that it's like a game of yes and improvisation. So the the writer says, I want to do this thing. And we go, yes, and let me tell you all the science that's around it and near it. And you take it and run with it in whatever direction you want. Like, let me give you a whole bunch of options. And you tell me where your curiosity gets sparked. And we'll dive down that little rabbit hole. You know how you can do the Wikipedia rabbit hole if you learn a thing and then you click a link and you learn another thing and another thing and another thing. That's kind of my job is to be that personalized, customized version where they say, so we were looking at the Apollo uh, like geophysics experiments. Could you tell us a little bit more about them? And you just start digging in and go, so we did this. We, we fired a mortar on the moon. We had explosives on the moon just because it made great science. But here's how and here's why. And let's try and incorporate that in. And yeah, in this storyline, it goes off in a totally different direction than the actual real life Apollo missions. But the The core is there. The seed is there. And that's what I love. Is there a favorite thing in the movie that you would point to as something that, yeah, I had a hand in that. I I pointed out that rabbit hole. Uh, I I have to say that my favorite is um, when we're describing the moon. And they say during the Apollo 12 missions, they jetsoned some fuel tanks and the moon rang like a bell. That is key geophysics right there. Is that how geophysicists talk about seismic waves? Seismic waves happen anytime you have a vibration source. It could be an earthquake 
or if you want to do a, a survey on your timeline and don't have the time to wait around for earthquakes, you can do it with like big thumper trucks or loading explosives or anything like that. It, it makes me very much feel like a James Bond villain when I'm hitting like the big red button and things blow up. Uh, well, we did that on the moon and we had little seismometers on the moon and we we used the moonquakes from the tidal forces and we used like the moonquakes of all the meteorite impacts. But we also did deliberate explosions on the moon. We crashed fuel tanks into it. We uh, crashed landing stages into it. We uh, set off mortars. We literally like planted explosives, all of these things to have known vibration sources in order to do this seismology so that we could map the internal structure of the moon. So it made me really happy because geophysics is like, it's one of those obscure sciences where even the other scientists don't quite know what we do. And to be able to have like this incredibly technical aspect of my field and our casual slang of how we talk about it, make it into a script was really quite fun. And you're an expert in disaster management. And I was curious whether any of that field got into the movie. One of the core tenets of disasters is that you're going to survive together or die alone, that you need to collaborate and cooperate and work together in order to survive. And you see this in things like if there is an earthquake and the building collapses, the first responders on scene digging out survivors are not the police or the firefighters or the paramedics. It is your next door neighbors. And we actually have uh, research where we can look at things where neighborhoods that have uh, a history of house parties where they invite their neighbors over have higher survival rates and stronger community resilience. Where this gets interesting in the movie is that we've got these characters who have to form groups in order to survive and trust each other and depend on each other's skills and knowledge and all of that, but also that they have to overcome their backstory, their past elements of distrust in order to now be able to trust each other's expertise and move forward that that character healing is actually a core part of their survival. And that makes sense in real life. Like you have to have that trust. That sounds like some real news you can use from the movie. Are there other bits of real world science that uh, viewers would be able to take away? Uh, there's, there's lots of bits and pieces along the edges of things. I'm not really sure how useful the, uh, the tidbit that you could have IBS and go to space, that space toilets are designed to handle diarrhea. I don't know how useful that is, but it is true. There are things like, why did everyone flee to Colorado? Well, Colorado is part of the um, geologic core of the continent is the Canadian Shield and Colorado are just like they're the center of the most stable bits where the rest of the continent kind of got glued along the edges. So if you're looking for geologic stability, Colorado is a good, ch a good chase. You're not going to really get many earthquakes there. Um, there's a, a slightly more obscure one of um, it's a pet peeve among disaster researchers that people like to call tsunami a tidal wave when it tidal wave or a tidal bore is actually caused by tides and a tsunami is caused by displacement of the ocean floor. Um, so like an impact or an earthquake or a bulk, or like a landslide and anything like that. Well, this we finally get to see, we've seen lots of movies where you have tsunami and this one we get to finally see what does an amped up tidal bore look like? Um, so what would an actual tidal wave look like? Um, and that made me really, really, really happy from like a technical jargon that doesn't really matter, but is nails on the chalkboard of irritations was really, really fun to see. Mm -hmm. And on your Twitter account, you say that somebody better ask you about pooping in space. So I'm asking. <laughs> All right. So we have one of the characters is that he's, he says he can't go to space because he has IBS. Turns out you are allowed to have 
IBS if you are an astronaut. This might be more relevant as we have more and more commercial spaceflight going on. Uh, we have designed the toilets to be able to handle a whole range of bodily fluids, including specifically for diarrhea. There's also an element of because gravity is necessary to feel that you need to use the bathroom, that feeling of urgency depends on gravity, which means that a lot of astronauts, well, all astronauts, actually go on a schedule instead. So you don't have to worry about feeling overly urgent all of the time. Instead, you just need to have a, a more rapid schedule of how often are you going to attempt to use the facilities. Mm -hmm. the, using the facilities itself takes like the entire instruction manual, but we skip that in the movie. So we can, we can leave that one. <laughs> And, and to refresh people's memories about uh, three-letter acronyms, IBS is Irritable Bowel Syndrome, and it really yes, is a thing right. on Earth. So you've also been a science advisor for other productions, including Stargate Atlantis, Stargate Universe, and Star Trek Discovery. Tell me about those experiences and how they differed from your Moonfall gig. So I have been a science consultant now for uh, 10 or 15 years. I don't even remember anymore. And I've done everything from help with the world building for pilots that have never been aired all the way through to being the onset stunt handwriting for uh, an actor. This was interesting in that this was my first time working in a team. I previously worked on shows where even if there were more than one science consultant, I didn't actually get to talk to them at the same time. It was very, very fun. I actually got brought into the project by Krista, who's an astrophysicist and astronomer. Um, and it was really fun to be able to do the, the bouncing ideas back and forth of, oh, and yes, and, and yes, and, and oh, I know how to make this even worse. And uh, like, you just said a thing that's inspiring this extra thing over here. So that was really fun. This entire process was done remotely for me. I, there, as I said, there was an onset, but it was not me. So I also didn't get to see what it was like until the end. I saw the beginning only and then a big, long silence. And then I got to see the final result. And it was so fun to just get that. You kind of have to be immune to spoilers if you're going to work in the entertainment industry because you see it with like all the, the nuts and bolts coming along together. You don't get to have the big surprise endings or anything. You're just, you're inherently spoiled. But in this one, I actually did get to, like, I knew all the big pieces. I had, I knew a whole bunch of the ideas, but actually seeing it come together was, was new and fresh for me. And that was lovely. What would you like folks to know about the scientific questions you address in your day job? <laughs> uh, so I am currently working on Project Espresso, which is looking at trying to figure out where it's interesting and where it's safe uh, on small planetary bodies, so like moons or asteroids or things like that, because we're sending more and more robots to go exploring, and we don't want them to get squished by a landslide. So I'm specifically looking at landslides on asteroids. It sounds like sci-fi, but it's actual real life. Very excited for it. My plans for that have been kind of put on hold by the pandemic in that eventually I'll get to take little sandboxes onto the vomit comet, onto a, a, a zero gravity flight and do a space simulation of uh, landslides in my sandboxes. Um, that has to wait until it's safe to do travel again. <sighs> Eventually I'll get to do that. But once I do, that'll be really fun uh, going in those, those microgravity flights. I've never had the opportunity to do that. And I'm very much looking forward to it. And with Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic getting involved in suborbital spaceflight, there's a chance that you might be able to fly into space with a payload. Is that something you're interested in doing? 
Oh, I would love it. I would absolutely love it. And every single time the astronaut applications open, I just put in my applications. I, I, my proudest rejection is uh, I applied to be an astronaut with the Canadian Space Agency and I got cut in the top 15%. And I'm like, you know what? That's pretty good. Like that right there, they're like, you're competent and capable, but don't have the skills we need. A beautiful rejection. If a conspiracy theorist with irritable bowel syndrome can go into space, surely Mika McKinnon can. Exactly. Exactly. One day. Check out my blog item on CosmicLog.com for more about Mika and more about Moonfall, which opens in theaters on February 4th. If you're looking for a story that has a slightly more realistic moon-smashing plot, the blog item includes a recommendation from the Cosmic Log Used Book Club. Thanks to Mika McKinnon, ZoomWorks, and Lionsgate for arranging the interview, and thanks to James Emley for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.